Our scripture reading, as opposed to our scripture singing, is from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousands of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, "'Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation,' shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel of who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up, and whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men, 
His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and appoints it over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tekel, you parshan. This is the interpretation of each word. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. When we were last in the book of Daniel, we saw a repentant king. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings from a worldly perspective the first great conqueror of all the known world, was humbled before God and was brought to repentance. His example was brought before Belshazzar's eyes in the passage we just read. Last Lord's Day, we looked at a different king, but no less a king, in fact, truly much more, We looked at Psalm 21, and we saw the eternal king. We saw that this psalm could be about none other but Jesus of Nazareth, the true king, who would be the eternal king, live forever and have an eternal throne. Uh, Thrones and kings and rule and authority, this has been our running theme for a number of months now. The scriptures use the title of kingship to talk about human rule in general. Now, not always. You can have the term ruler or governor or magistrate. There's a number of words. But when Scripture wants to sum up the rule of uh, men, the, the governance of their lives in a governmental way, it tends to use the term kingship. Might use Caesar, but that's about the same sort of thing. A king rules men. And the scripture talks an awful lot about kingship. Kingship will never leave humanity, nor can it. In fact, when we looked at Psalm 21, we saw that Jesus was king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of all men in all places. He owns all creation because he is God's king. He will be an eternal king, so uh, you will never know a situation where there is not a king. Jesus the Lord will be king, even if no others exist. And uh, kingship has been with us since the very beginning, by and large. From the very beginning of the fall, you had men who were raised above other men. And being such an important topic of human life, Scripture talks a lot about it. Would you 
like to know what a king is supposed to be like? If the answer is yes, you would turn to Romans chapter 13, and there you have the classic statement of God's will for the king, the ruler, the magistrate, the governor, those who exert authority over men. This is what Christ's apostle, speaking from him, has to say about what kingship is supposed to look like. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now that seems to be an absolute statement, and it is. Daniel, in talking to Belshazzar, talked about Nebuchadnezzar, who began his rule as an absolute pagan, a bloodthirsty man, an unjust man, And Daniel has no problem speaking from the Holy Spirit and saying, you know the reason why Nebuchadnezzar received a kingdom? God appointed him to it. He wasn't good, he wasn't godly, ended his life that way, but didn't start it. But God lifted him up, and Paul says, all the authorities on earth, they have been placed there by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, what is an ordinance? An ordinance is a a pattern, a, a, a law statute. It's a situation that comes from God as what he wants it to be. God has placed rulers over men for his own purposes, and they have a purpose. If God gives something, God doesn't just say, okay, now, you know, go do what you want, I've made you king. Uh, They're supposed to do a certain thing. And what is that? For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So, in God's economy, the purpose for a king, the purpose for a governor, the purpose for someone who rules among men, is that they are to restrain evil and vice. Evil harms people, evil strikes at the image of God, evil is the opposite of God's nature. What a king is supposed to do is he is to be a terror to evil. He is not supposed to be a terror to good works. Do you want to be unafraid of the authorities? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due." Taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to fear, honor to whom honor. So there is nothing in this passage that would allow a servant of God to be an anarchist in any way. God has lifted up authorities. Those authorities have a purpose. They are to restrain evil. They are to do good to the good. They wear the sword to restrain evil. Uh, They are God's minister. God has given to rulers, to do a certain work. God expects it of them. Uh, They represent him in this work. It is a holy thing. Treat their office, treat their ministrations in doing what they're supposed to do with a proper reverence to them as God would have it. Oh, and by the way, this extends even to paying taxes. Probably the most unpopular passage in the entire New Testament. Now, what is this submission supposed to look like? Well, uh, Paul has demonstrated it fairly well, but uh, there's another classic passage that goes into that. It is 1 Peter chapter 2, and that is verse 11 through 15. Here we read this. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, 
that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So uh, the foundation here is what I'm about to tell you will strike against your fleshly loves, lusts, that's at war with your soul. You will have honorable conduct if you do what I have spoken, and this will be good works. Well, what comes next? Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So, what does the Bible say about kings and those in authority? Well, It's not kidding. There is a call to God's servants to respect them, to pray for them, to honor them, to hold them in high regard. This is the teaching of the Word of God, and there is no getting around that. But this is not all it says about kings either. There is another side to the issue of human kingship, and it is not the question of what should they do, or what we should do in response to their proper ministry, it's the question of what will they do. And what a man should do, and what a man will do, if you've lived long enough in this world to hit puberty, you are probably aware those are not always the same thing. In fact, they are poles apart quite often. And when Scripture begins to talk about what kings among men will do, it looks very, very different than what Paul describes as what they should do. And here, if you would hear the Bible's teaching on this, you would turn to Revelation chapter 13, but the foundation of 13 is actually in chapter 12. It's a fairly long passage, and it's a vision But it lays the foundation for what the vision concerning human kingship will be. And we start with verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, where have we heard that phrase before? It's from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 gets quoted in the New Testament over and over again, talking about the rule of Jesus Christ. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the kingdoms of the earth. You will rule them with a rod of iron. You will crush them like pottery. Who is this child who is being born? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go further into the chapter, that will be stated directly. If that's the case, then who is this woman? Well, if you know the book of Genesis, you know that when Joseph had his dream about his family, uh, the imagery that is used for this woman is exactly the same imagery that Joseph talks about in his dream. Mom and dad and brothers are the sun, moon, and stars, And that's who this woman is described as. This is the visible people of God. This is the covenant people. This is the visible church of Christ. Jesus the Christ is born in the visible church of God. He is the son of David. And so this vision is a vision talking about the birth of Christ. And the devil, which again, we're going to have that identified especially in coming verses, is not terribly thrilled with the birth of Christ and tries to destroy Christ upon his birth. And if you want the details of this, all you have to do is go read the Gospels. The devil tried to destroy Christ right at the time of his birth. (coughs) 
Going on. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows his time is short. Now, if you've been cast out of heaven, you can't go back. You've been the enemy of God, but... Something has happened that has shut you out forever from God's glory. And there's a kingdom on earth. And remember, we're talking about kingdom. There's a kingdom of God on earth, and you only have a short amount of time. What are you going to do with it? Well, you're probably extremely mad, and you're extremely petty, and you want revenge. You can't strike at God the Son, so you'll strike at his people. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth... He persecuted the woman, that is, the visible church, the people of God, the people of the kingdom. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by a flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's you and me. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So... As chapter 12 of Revelation comes to an end, there's a kingdom that the devil hates, a king. The devil is at war with that kingdom. He's trying to destroy the visible church. He is trying to destroy every member of it. He is going to do everything possible to do that. What would be the most effective way to do that? Enter chapter 13. If you have a a King James or New King James, the first verse reads, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. That may be the reading. And if so, John is calling your attention to the fact that the vision is now changing to an image of the sea. And regardless of who this is, that's important. Because in Scripture, the, the swirling mass of the ocean is often a symbol of all mankind. It's deep and vast and broad and chaotic and filled with all sorts of violent creatures and things, and it's often used as a symbol of mankind in Scripture. And John may be standing on the seashore and saying, now I'm looking at the sea. In a number of ancient manuscripts, it says, he stood on the sands of the seashore. And if that's the right reading, it's not referring to John, who's having the vision. It's referring to the devil. It's referring to the dragon He's been cast out of heaven. The dragon is now wanting to destroy God's people. He now goes over to the sea and stands on the edge of the seashore. And this is what happens. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, before we consider what this might be, we need to ask ourselves, have we heard that description anywhere before? And the answer is yes, we have heard it just one chapter ago. The devil was the great dragon. He had several heads. He had crowns on his heads. Uh, Fearsome monster. Well, 
likely the right reading is that monster is standing on the edge of the sea, and out of the sea comes somebody that looks just like him. Just like him. There's a family resemblance. There's a blasphemous name on this new creature. And we go on, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Now again, have we heard that description before? The answer is yes, but we're not up to it yet. It's in the book of Daniel. And when Daniel has a vision of the coming kingdoms of the earth, they're going to look just like that. They're going to be bears and leopards, and they're going to have wings and such. And so uh, the vision that John is having is very much like Daniel's vision, which talked about the kingdoms of the earth, the kings of the earth. Kingship comes out of the sea, out of mankind. There are ruling beasts, many heads, but all one creature. And this creature is given authority, given a throne, given power, but who is giving it its power? It is the first creature that we saw in chapter 12, which it looks just like. Human rule comes up out of mankind, the devil looks at it and says, that's my boy, I'm going to give it everything I possibly can give it, I am going to make it powerful. And I saw one of the heads as it had been mortally wounded, and the deadly wound was healed. That is a fascinating verse I'm not going to deal with because it would take us down a rabbit trail, uh, but we go on. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So we're looking at human kings, and we're seeing them being blasphemous. It's almost, you can almost picture them in great pride and arrogance in their festive hall, calling for the vessels of the temple, which was to be used for worshiping God, and saying, let's mock God, let's, let's drink wine in our party out of his holy vessels, and let's worship other gods to, to offend him, uh, it's almost like they would be that blasphemous, right? I mean, that's what's being talked about. Um, they blaspheme God, they blaspheme his name, they blaspheme his ta- tabernacle. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life, the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints." The vision goes on, and it goes on to a false prophet who will teach men to worship this new beast. But for our purposes, we have seen human government come out of mankind. We have seen the devil infuse it with power. We've seen it looks just like the devil. We have seen that it will blaspheme God. It will revile him, and God will for a time give it power, and even the very saints of God will get run over and crushed by it, and The most significant thing about it is it will compete with God. You see, the one true God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ruler over everything. He created everything. He is the real king. And it turns out human kings don't like competition. The very essence of human rule is to rule over men, to have power, and power is addictive. Just ask the devil. You know? And so we are watching the kingdoms of men rise up against God and say, sir, I think you're in my seat. I'm going to attack your kingdom. I'm going to do everything I can to destroy it. 
I'm going to blaspheme your name. I am going to compete with you. I am going to do everything possible to oppose you. How does that compare with Romans 13? Well, the answer is not well, but that's why the two passages are given to us. What is the king supposed to do? He is supposed to restrain evil, to lift up the good. He is supposed to be a servant of God, to bless men, to be under God and do that. That is what he is supposed to do. And because he has a purpose, we are to honor him in that purpose. But if you think he's going to do that, you're naive. Because there are more spirits involved in the world than one, and God, for his purposes, has allowed the devil to animate human governments. And it's not our government is godly, those people are bad, they have a bad government. It's every human government is going to be like that. Every human government is going to partake of the devil's nature. Every human government is going to compete with God. Every human government is going to be an idol for men to worship if they won't worship God. You see, men do worship. Men place their trust and loyalty in something higher than themselves. They look for something to be greater than themselves, and they look for salvation If it's not God, it'll be something. And most likely, it'll be a human government, because that is the number one competitor. So you've got what government should do, and you've got what government will do. In chapter 4, we saw a king who fit into Romans 13, at least in the end. Nebuchadnezzar, murderer. Nebuchadnezzar, power, man, bloodthirsty despot, God in his grace and mercy took hold of him. And if you don't think conversion is a matter of God and not men, you need to go ask Nebuchadnezzar because he was not prepared to be converted at all. God slapped him down, brought him to ruin, laid him out and showed him, I rule. I'm really the king. You're not. That's a Romans 13 kind of event. Psalm 21 is the ultimate Romans 13 event. Jesus Christ, the King, given eternal life forever, uh, does the Lord Christ actively promote the good and suppress evil? Absolutely, every moment of the day. Does the Lord Christ terrify wickedness? Does he revel in goodness? Totally. Psalm 21 is the ultimate king, the righteous king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, terms the Bible uses with no poetry. It's the truth. Kings have kings. Lords have a lord. That king and lord is Jesus Christ. So for two Lord's Days, we've looked at Romans 13 kind of kings, But today, we're in Revelation 13 territory. We have jumped quite far in history, at least from Daniel's perspective. As we began the book of Daniel, Daniel was a young man brought before Nebuchadnezzar to go into his service. Now, decades upon decades have passed. The the book of Daniel is effectively a character sketch of events, and When Daniel comes into this throne room, he is not the young boy. He is the stooped, aged man. Uh, And there's a new Babylonian king on the throne, or at least he's on half of it. A funny thing uh, happened on Belshazzar's way to the throne. He is the king regent. His dad's not dead. His dad is in a monastery trying to figure himself out. The, the history of Babylon is still sort of clouded. We, archaeologically, we don't have a perfect picture of everything that happened. But it turns out that Belshazzar's direct father, Nebuchadnezzar's son, was really, really confused religiously. 
he ended up getting into fights with local priesthoods of the local religions. But more than that, he just honestly got really, really overwhelmed with the question of what is the real religion. And he ultimately locked himself into a monastery to try to figure that out. But he was still king. Now, if your dad was going on and on about some foreign god who had overcome him, and your dad had been seven years mad, and then suddenly he was restored and talking about the great god of gods, and nobody else in Babylon is talking about those gods, you might be a little confused too. I'm just hypothesizing. But be that as it may, he is still technically the king, but he's not governing. And so he has made his son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, co-ruler. And uh, the grandson has a different approach to religion. He is absolutely blasphemous and vile. He raises his glass to gods, but what gods does he raise his glass to? Gods of silver, gods of gold, gods of, of wood, and other precious commodities. He raises his glass in worship to effectively naturalism. He raises his glass to wealth and opulence and all the things that motivate those who are of this world and have no eternal vision. His father is really wrapped up in what is religion. His grandfather was a religious embarrassment. Some, some Hebrew god overcame him and grandpa became weird. But I'm going to rule, and I'm going to rule in the old-fashioned way. I'm going to rule for me. I am going to call a party of my nobles, and we are going to use the resources of the kingdom, not for the kingdom. We are going to pour them out on us. We are going to bring the holy treasures of God's temple to make fun of him and to in, engage in an opulent, wasteful party, merriment and song. At the very moment, my people are surrounded by the armies of Medes and Persians. Outside the very walls of the city, my citizens are being butchered. But what am I going to do? I am arrogant. I am going to do what I want to do. I am going to celebrate myself. I am going to have no fear of God. I am going to be self-serving. I am going to uh, not only worship wealth, but I'm going to think wealth can buy every problem out. When my mother, you'll notice, by the way, that he has his wives and his concubines at the party, and then the queen comes in. Well, if his wives are at the party, who's the queen? Well, it's his mom. It's his, his co-regent's wife. She comes in and says, there's one here who has the spirit of the holy God in him who might be able to help you out. And uh, Belshazzar says, great, let's buy him. I have, a, I have wealth and reward at my fingers, and natural resources can solve everything. I will give him a chain of gold. I will make him third ruler in the kingdom. Remember, Belshazzar is a co-regent, so he can't make him second. He has to make him third because he's sharing the throne with his dad. But I will throw money at my problem, and I will use the servants of God. Now, I blaspheme God. I'm having this party to make fun of him, uh, but it turns out one of his servants could help me, so I will throw money at them, and I will use God's people. My mother will talk about the Spirit of God being in the man, but I will never say that. I will simply talk about you have wisdom and you can help me, and I will throw money at you, and that will make the situation all good. So... What kind of king and ruler is Belshazzar? An absolutely typical one. He is a typical ruler. This is who kings are. And you know why kings are like this? It's because you would be like this if you were king. We have a fallen nature. Sin crawls through our every thought. Sin crouches at the door and would have us. 
If we break free from sin, it is because of the grace of God. There is nothing good in us, and there's nothing good in anybody else. The only good that, that exists is from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. What kind of king would you be if God placed you on a throne and said, now do what you want? You think that'd be good for people, making you king? You don't want me king. I promise you, you don't want me king. I would be terrible if the grace of God did not grab hold of me. Because that's who's going to be king. Who's going to be king is a human being. A human being is a fallen creature. And Belshazzar is absolutely typical. He is faced with death. He is absolutely arrogant. He has decided to have a party to uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it turns out he does. He has no fear of God. He doesn't turn to God, even in this last moment. Uh, He's a typical ruler among men. What is the good news here, though? Well, the good news is actually what we have seen in the last two sermons I spoke of. The good news in this situation can be found in Psalm 21. There, when the great king, the king who is given eternity to live and to rule forever, is given his throne, in verse 7 through 11, we read this. The king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. That is, the eternal king, Jesus Christ. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. In the fire he shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. So the good news is, the eternal king will ultimately win. He will bring his day of judgment, and competitors have a rough road to hoe on this day. All those who oppose him end up in fire. And along the way to that day, uh, this is why that day comes, And this is what Jesus does until we get there. For they intended evil against you. This is why wrath comes upon Christ's enemies. They intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. So the Belshazzars of this world will oppose the kingdom of God. They will oppose Jesus Christ. They will mock God. They will be blasphemous. And we are promised they will not succeed. They cannot do what they have devised, although they have intended evil against Christ. And on the way to the judgment day, we read, Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string towards their faces. What does this verse mean? Well, ask Belshazzar, the God of heaven shot him in the face. The God of heaven arranged the history of men, arranged the events of man, that his rule would come to an end when God decided it would, and he would die. And Belshazzar had no answer for that. Um, The good news about this passage is in the chapter right before it, in chapter 4, where when Daniel was talking to uh, his grandfather... And when the voice from heaven was talking to his grandfather, we read these kind of verses. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. Or... And I, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Or the last verse of chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. That's the good news of our passage. We're seeing that truth take place. For men like Belshazzar, the handwriting is always on the wall. It doesn't always appear as a miracle, though it did this day. This is not a poetic story. This is something that happened. But always, whether you see it or not, the handwriting is on the wall for the rulers of men. Mine, mine, repeated, because it means it is absolutely assured. God has measured your rule and brought it to an end. Mine, mine. It is guaranteed that the times and seasons you will rule are not determined by you, are not determined by your ruthlessness, are not determined by how clever you are or the size of your army or whether you have neutron bombs. Mine, mine, God has measured and brought it to an end. Uh, Tikal. Tikal is, you have been weighed in the balance. There is no human ruler, no governor, no uh, leader of any kind who will get away from God's balancing them. No one will not appear before the eternal king and have to answer for what they've done. You have been weighed, and it is my right to weigh you. I am the eternal king. I am not just the king of the church. The church of God, the chosen people, are the apple of my eye. They are my chosen possession. But I ask of my father, and he didn't just give me the church, I ask of my father, and he gave me the nations for my inheritance. You belong to me, and I have the right to weigh you. And if you don't weigh right, I will rule you with a rod of iron. I will crush you as a potter's vessel, as indeed happens. And finally, Perez, your kingdom has been divided out to those I want to give it to. You will not have a say in who inherits your power. I will, because I am the eternal king. That is the good news. You see, it becomes heavier, it becomes more profound when you read this chapter and you realize that it's not really shocking. You read it and you say, wow, that's shocking. And then you realize, no, this is the kings of the earth. They do that. But the good news is they don't get away with nothing. The ruler in heaven decides their fate. The ruler in heaven decides what they can do. The ruler in heaven uses them And he has a reason for using them. This is a fulfillment of something we have already seen in a a further chapter back in uh, Daniel, chapter 2, where we read this in uh, 2 and, uh, I don't have my Bible marked here, but 2 and verse 44 and 45. No, seriously. Come on, turn. And in the days of these kings, that is the kings who were gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay, in the days of the kings of the earth, in the days of these kings, God, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone which was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, 
The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The good news is that every Belshazzar will be shattered because God is making another kingdom and he's not going to allow it to be frustrated. The way the prophet Habakkuk puts it is, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed and establishes a city by iniquity. To anybody who does that, that's not acceptable. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You might interpret this sermon as Pastor Russ is preaching passivity. God will, in his due time, bring the evil kings of the earth to ruin. Uh, You don't need to do nothing. That is not what I'm doing. There are enough biblical passages that talk about God's people being salt, light, and leaven that you know that's not what I'm doing. But what I am doing is I am preaching to you a message of hope. For thousands of years, the devil cast to the earth has desired to destroy God's kingdom and the influence of King Jesus, and he has used the governments of men to try to do that, and they have done terrible things, and some of God's elect have been physically killed, but King Jesus still sits in heaven with his bow cocked. And he still shoots them in the face. And that has been going on for these millennia, and it will still go on. I am not preaching to you passivity, but I am preaching to you an absolute assurity of hope. King Jesus, the eternal king, the king of that kingdom that will shatter every human kingdom, will never be dethroned, and those who bring governmental pressure to bear to destroy that kingdom will never succeed. They won't succeed. They will do great violence. They will be blasphemous. King Jesus will never be dethroned. Live actively, but live in the assurity of this hope.